The show you're about to hear discusses films, books, and TV shows in their entirety. Twists, endings, and all. Without fear of spoilers. So if you don't want to know who dies, who done it, or how it all ends, we strongly advise you switch off now. Hello, I'm Paul Tyler and welcome to Spoiler, the show which reviews movies, books and TV shows in their entirety. This week we're looking at Whiplash and just another final warning, we will be talking about the end of the movie, we will ruin it for you. So if you haven't already seen Whiplash, go away and watch it now, then come back to us afterwards. Have they gone? Right, on with the show. As the old joke goes, what do you call a film that hangs around with films about musicians? A film about drumming. Set. 2014's Whiplash was adapted from writer-director Damien Chazelle's own short film of the same name, incorporating his own experiences as a jazz drummer with a tough teacher. Chazelle set out to make a movie about his emotions at that time, predominantly fear. Why do you suppose I just hurled a chair at your head, Neiman? I, I don't know. Sure you do. The tempo? Were you rushing or were you dragging? I, I don't know. Start counting. Five, six, seven. In four, five. damn it! Look at me! One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Rushing or dragging? Rushing. So you do know the difference! Early success with the Audience Award and the Grand Jury Award at Sundance prompted much critical acclaim, and five Oscar nominations followed. It won three, one of which you could have bet your house on. Best Supporting Actor for J.K. Simmons. There are no two words in the English language more harmful than good job. Not all agreed with the largely favourable reviews of this film. The New Yorker's Richard Brody wrote that Whiplash honours neither jazz nor cinema. People wonder why jazz is dying. So, is that Whiplash backlash credible? Or was 2014 the year that we will look back on and ask why on earth Birdman got the Best Picture Award when this was also nominated? Whiplash... Bar 125, big boy tempo, 5, 6, 8. Later in the show, we'll be taking a closer look at another classic but largely forgotten drumming scene from the 1941 film Bowl of Fire. And we'll also be hearing from an actual jazz drummer about his take on Whiplash. But first, it's time to introduce the rest of the spoiler team. At my left is someone that can identify the artist of indie bands from the 90s by smelling the inside cover of a CD case alone. It's the poet, Andy Golding. And on my right is the only person I know that can illustrate her way out of trouble. It's our very own Rachel Burnett. Welcome both. Hello. 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 Okay, right, there we go. Introductions out the way. Uh, let's get on with this, shall we? Yes, let's go. Okay, a film about drumming. How much convincing did you take? <laughs> okay, so let's let's start with Rachel. Rachel, you have a background in music, don't you? I you know? do. You're a, a jazz singer yourself. You Indeed. Just, you're one of one of your many many strings to one of your many bows. <laughs> um, so, but drummers, right? Come on. 
actually, I have a bit of a thing for drummers. I <gasps> like drumming. I was quite excited about seeing it. Um, and um, the drummer we're speaking to later is a friend of mine. So, yes, drummers I like and jazz drummers I like even more. Okay. So it wasn't a hard sell to me. Okay, so let's talk about the build. There was a bit of a build around. There's a bit of a atmosphere around the release of this film. A lot of those, there was a good word of mouth around it, wasn't there? So how did you hear about it in the first place? Um, actually, through my jazz drumming friend, um, who hadn't seen it at that point, but said, oh, there's a jazz drumming film coming out. Oh, it's going to be really good. He was excited at the time. I think we may discover that his mind might have been changed slightly. <laughs> yeah, um, sure. But yeah, I mean, obviously... I think Andy and I would both follow blogs and various film things and we know what's coming up and we get excited about it and anything to do with jazz, I'm all over it. Okay, so you won in the beginning. Andy, what about you? Um, well, I've, I've never been a, a particular fan of jazz or anything. I grew up very much into punk music and I come, come from the sort of school of thought that there's nothing more boring in the world than a drum <laughs> solo. So uh, to going to see a film where the main action set piece is a drum solo it was a, quite a hard sell to me but like Rachel says it, there was a big buzz around it it was a big Oscar film I always try and see see all the films that come out around Oscar time so uh, I went to see it and I think I changed my mind quite quickly on it because this, this is a film that it opens with a drum roll before we even see any pictures it's like there's a drum roll there's a build up and then there's this constant pounding of the drums throughout the whole film like a heartbeat going so it it really it's somehow they've made a film about drumming that is also a thriller in a way yeah, yeah yeah i mean really it's, in, in in some areas it's been compared to like a sports movie hasn't it you know the competition yeah. that's involved around it and we'll, we'll we'll get to that in a bit but i suppose early on i'd like to talk about the the, the feel maybe in the in the direction of the film it, it's quite it's, it's very close isn't it mm. yeah yeah i've watched it a second time recently and it really struck me the the palette of it it's all golden green pretty much all gold and green and very dark colours as well. So, And there's lots of shadows around the edges. So you do feel very locked in. It's quite claustrophobic. Yeah. But um, I sort of see this green colour as a bit of a sickness that goes through the film. <laughs> it's a bit, I mean, Alfred Hitchcock used that a lot, um, especially in Vertigo, where he introduces the green for a sickness. And there's a lot of bits where um, Neiman is going from a gold into a green and you can see him descending into this kind of sick area. So as as I was watching it the second time, I thought, yeah, there's definite a definite sort of colour palette going on where it's leading you to feel a little bit sickly. Yeah, uh, definitely. I, I think probably even later on in the film when uh, when he's doing driving the car scene, the car crash, and mm. uh, because that's outside, it's it's a little bit like walking out into the daylight on a sunny day, isn't yeah. it? You yeah. know, you've been inside all day. Uh, you, you sort of notice it. You think, oh, blimey, I've been trapped in a room for this you know, for, uh, for so long. Yeah. Um, but you mentioned Neiman there, so it's Andrew Neiman, isn't it? Is the is the uh, the drummer, the student, played by Miles Teller, uh, and of course J.K. Simmons plays that uh, on its way to I think being a legendary role as as, as, as Fletcher, uh, the instructor, the teacher. Mm. Um, and the first time we see him, it's just a walk down a corridor. And even that walk, he could have written his name on the Oscar then, couldn't he? Andy, come on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was surprised really that the Oscar he won was Best Supporting Actor because I think this is a leading role. I know that we're following Neiman's story, but I mean, it, Fletcher is really kind of the, the centre center of the film, I think, and the, the drive behind it. And there's a there's a lot of films down in Oscar history that have given Best Actor Oscars to people who've done a lot shorter performances. I think Shine, Jeffrey Rush got the Oscar for, and he's he's only in like not even a third of the film, I don't think. And uh, David Niven for Separate Tables won. I think he's in about for twelve minutes. So yeah, I, 
think it's it's a really it's a really powerful performance. I think it's it's slightly let down occasionally by some of the writing because to me this is the sort the sort of role that is the most powerful. It's it's like Jaws. Jaws is always the most effective when you can't see much of the shark. And so for when J.K. Simmons is on the screen and he's he's holding back and he's kind of a, he he has this little hand motion that when he stops the musicians uh, as they're playing and it's as if he's sort of scaled them down in his in his mind and he's crushing them in his fist. He sort of twists them to start and that that is enough for me. But then there's I think the scenes where it steps over the mark where he actually physically abuses them. Which I think then that is like seeing the whole shark in Jaws. It's gone too far. It's not scary anymore because I can't quite believe that not one member of that class has not walked out there and made a complaint about it. And so, I, I mean, through no fault of J.K. Simmons' own, I think it loses a little bit in credibility at that point. So you think? You th- I think what you're saying there is it would be more <laughs> fierce if it was just. Uh, rather than the, phys- the the small amounts of physical abuse that are there, if it was just purely mental abuse, yeah, you know, then it'd be, you, you feel it'd be more intimidating. Yeah, I, I understand that. I understand that. I don't think there were many scenes wasted, if if any. Um, you, you can look at a scene very early on where uh, Paul Reiser, the guy who used to be in My Two Dads, uh, who, <laughs> who, yeah, we all know, we all know, and and I, I look back with a certain amount of fondness for that. Anyway. My two dads is there and they're in the cinema and some popcorn gets either knocked over him or he gets knocked, can't remember which, but it wasn't his fault, but he says sorry. So early on, you know that he's never going to stand up for his boy. He's never going to stand up to this, this, this bully to, you know, uh, to his boy, apart from maybe the technical ways that happen sort of later through the film, you know, through through the, the paperwork ways. Whereas, you know, I think there are many of us thinking, hang on, that was my lad. I'd be, I'd be in there, I'd be sorting him out. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, maybe, maybe, this, maybe that's what Andrew... Neiman's looking for, you know, he's, he's looking for this, this, this sort of big macho role model. I, I, I don't know. No, I agree with that, actually. I think he is because the dad, and probably from my nostalgia of my two dads as well, he is this <laughs> lovely dad, isn't he? And, yeah. um, you know, in the cinema, they still go to the cinema once a week and it's all very lovely and very gentle. And that's not, or, or Andrew doesn't think that's going to push him or that he's going to achieve greatness if he's not pushed. And then he finds that push in J.K. Simmons' character. So in a way, this this film is a new version of My Two Dads. <laughs> <laughs> you know, all I want to do now is watch that. <laughs> okay, so I think we'll, we'll come up to the pressures, and you mentioned you touched there on on the greatness part of it, Rach, and we'll come to that as we as we look further at the, at the final act. Uh, but there's there's a clip you wanted to play, and isn't there, isn't there, Andy? About uh, is, it, is it the Russian or Dragon sequence? Yeah, you, you, yeah. you wanted to talk about this, didn't you? So well, yeah, it's the scene where where Fletcher first really crosses the line physically with Neiman. Now, are you a rusher, or are you a dragger, or are you going to be on my time? I'm going to be on your time. What does that say? Quarter note equals 215. Count me at 215. A one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Jesus one, two, Christ! Am I to understand that you cannot read tempo? Can you even read music? What is that? Eighth note? Yes, what is that? Dotted 16th note. Sight read measure 101. What are you, in a acapella group? Play the goddamn kit! Now answer my question. Were you rushing or were you dragging? Answer! Rushing. Oh, my dear God. Are you one of those single-tier people? You must be upset. Are you upset? No. No? So you just don't give a about any of this? I do give a about this. Are you upset? Yes or no? Yes. You are upset. Yeah. Say it. 
I'm upset. Say it so the whole band can hear you. I'm upset. Louder! I'm upset. Louder! I'm upset! You are a worthless, friendless, lip little piece of shit whose mommy left daddy when she figured out he wasn't Eugene O'Neill and who is now weeping and slobbering all over my drum set like a nine-year-old girl. So for the final father time, say it louder! I'm upset! Carl. Start practicing harder, Neiman. Yeah, so it, it's obviously a very, a very powerful scene. It's effective, and you know, I suppose if that's what uh, most people are familiar with watching on clips on YouTube and, mm-hmm. and, and trailers and things like that, then it, it does its job. It perhaps sells the film, doesn't it? But uh, but yeah, I think you, we, we I take your point on the on, on the physical violence. You know, maybe. yeah, I think even just listening to the audio there, hearing that that smack of the, the physical violence, it's it's a bit too much for me. I think yeah. So I mean, if we look at that that mental and uh, rather than physical. Uh, abuse then it's done in a very very smart way I think uh, I'd like to know what you think about it is, is where he Fletcher sets him up almost doesn't he by talking very nicely and conversationally about him before uh, he, he gets into you know gets into playing with the big band if you like finding information about his dad and his mum and this that and the other and then really battling and using it against him um, so I, don't, how did, I mean how did you, feel, you feel about that do you think that was well done yeah I mean I thought that that was actually more effective than the slapping I thought actually yeah. getting inside his his psyche like that and manipulating him making him think oh yeah I've done really well here this is great and I've got this fantastic mentor and he's going to be brilliant and then he steps in and all of a sudden it's a 180 and it's completely different it's so unsettling and it's so jarring that that would have been enough to have made him feel very scared very intimidated probably to walk out to be honest if I was him but by then he's already got him he's he's reeled him in as like you know this is what I'm going to promise you I'm promising you greatness and then next moment, well, physically slapping, but, you know, a mental slap too. So, yeah, I thought that was that was well done and really gave you an insight into how far this guy's willing to go. He's not just going to listen to his music and have a pop at it. He's going to find out where your buttons are and really push them. So it, it became more sinister, I think. Mm. That sort of stalking element. Yeah, yeah, it's true. But also after he's like, after the event, right, after he got uh, selected to go through to, the, you know, to, through to Fletcher's band and, and got that... He got the confidence then to, to, to come into a very small character, I think, in the film, but actually a very important one, uh, Nicole. Uh, the, you know, the, 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 he gets the confidence then to ask her out, doesn't he? Yeah, this was, this was another part of the film that I... To, to begin with, I thought it was very... The romance sort of thing was very underwritten, but then I came to think, well, is that the point? It never gets off the ground at all because he's completely focused on, on his drumming and it, there's just no room in his life for anything else so I don't know if it was meant to be as as underwritten as it was but I never sort of really felt that that it got going enough to really feel any sense of loss when he splits up with Nicole and then later on to an extent seems to regret it I think but the the more you do that I think the more you do that the more it detracts the more it takes away from this bubble that you that we were in and we were talking about before I think where uh you know you the, the more you stretch outside that I think it was it was sparing and it was, I think it was done, I take your point of it, yeah. I take your point, you know, there's, there's not a lot of uh, subtlety or, or development of character there, but anything like that takes you away from it, it takes you away from the beat and that rhythm that uh, that was there. Yeah, I think there was the right amount of scenes for it, I just didn't think that it really worked up any kind of chemistry between them in the, in the scene, I know it's difficult to do in such concentrated periods of time, but I never sort of felt there was anything between them, so when it ended... 
I didn't really feel anything had happened. But. So this, really what we're looking at here is, is a lot of focus and ambition. Rachel, you're a musician. Do you recognise any of this? Oh, you know, is, 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 well, I don't know. I, I was wondering, I wondered about asking you about people you know. Uh, but, you know, is, is that to achieve great things in music, do you need to push yourself out, out really out of your comfort zone? I wouldn't say you have to push it as hard as Neiman did. Nowhere near. Um, my experience of being in jazz especially, is very much a community, um, almost family feel to bands. Um, people get together, they jam, they share ideas. Oh, why don't you try this? How about singing it like that? And it's a really welcoming and encouraging music area to be in. Of course, I'm not one of the great jazz singers, so maybe I needed pushing. But um, <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, I, I know bits about... Ella Fitzgerald and Billie Holiday and Nina Simone and those sort of people and how they achieve greatness. And it certainly wasn't by having anybody slap them or push them to that extent. Um, I think you need your own drive to get there. And if you need somebody else outside there pushing you a bit, then that's grand. But I think you've got to weigh up the cost of greatness. Really, is it worth it? And I think this went far beyond music and far beyond jazz and just went to something else. So, yeah, it's a much larger story than it first appeared. It's interesting to see this kind of flip side of, of the inspiring story, though, isn't mm. it? Because when Whiplash came out, I think the film that got mentioned most in relation to it was Full Metal Jacket. But thinking it over, I thought it's kind of more like the flip side of Dead Poet Society, where, with a hate figure as the inspiration rather than... Robin Williams and his, uh, his jokey attitude towards authority. Standing on a desk. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to sort of send us a bit off guard here and ask you a very flippant question <laughs> that I want you both to answer. Okay, now, you know, we don't want to get into too much depth because anyone who's listening to this must have already seen the film. Okay, so, who took the folder? Fletcher. Do you know, I've, I've never actually even, <laughs> even thought about it. Uh, exactly. yeah, to okay. me, to me, that was a, that's that's odd thinking about it. That, that question never came to our mind. I just panicked when the folder was gone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, I think I was just totally in Neiman's shoes and thought, "What am I going to do?" Rather than oh, who's yes. taken that away. Wow, that was my first thought. Was oh, the little he's gone. And taken it. <laughs> that was my first thought. It was like he set him up again. So that's really interesting that you hadn't even thought about it because on on the internet on blogs. People think that he did it to himself. There's a possibility that he purposefully um, kind of... But I don't know how that's yeah. possible, but there is a whole, like, you know, conspiracy theory that he a took fight it himself. Cl- a fight club scenario. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I know we're doing spoiler, but you've not seen fight... Oh, no, you must have seen it. <laughs> okay. Okay. Now, later, we're going to be hearing from a real-life jazz drummer about his take on the movie, and Andy will be telling us about another favourite drumming movie of his. That's all after this short break. Now, this is the slightly awkward bit of the show where we pass the hat around. Making a podcast isn't expensive, but there are some costs we do need to cover. And to be honest, it would be nice to have a few quid to keep us supplied with coffee and cake. You can help the show by visiting our webpage, spoilerpodcast.co.uk, clicking on the donate button and giving whatever you think we're worth. Alternatively, if you're planning on buying anything from Amazon, you can do that via the links on our website and we'll get a few pennies each time. That's spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Or you can help us out for free and get yourself an audiobook of your choice into the bargain by signing up for a free 30-day trial with Audible via the link on our website. Audible have the world's largest selections of audiobooks, including The Art of Asking by Amanda Palmer, uh, which is coincidental because that's what we're doing right now. And because I've heard that audiobook, I don't feel ashamed about doing so. Uh, there's also The Girl on a Train by Paula Hawkins uh, or the latest from Amanda Palmer's husband, Neil Gaiman, too. 
You can cancel your membership at any time within 30 days and you won't pay a penny, but you still get to keep your free audiobook. Just go to spoilerpodcast.co.uk and click on the Audible trial ad on the left-hand side. We get a few quid each time someone signs up on our link, which will help keep our producer Johnny supplied with Monster Munch and Curly Whirlies. Now, back to the show. All right, let's get to work, ladies. Well, it's all well and good, us three blathering on about drumming, but none of us can actually play the drums. Well, that, that bit of script I've just written, is it's not exactly right. Um, sometimes my wife comes home from work and says, what have you been doing all day? And, uh, well, you're about to hear the answer. Um, my six-year-old has uh, a toy drum kit, I have a microphone, and I have ambition. This is my take on the whiplash drumming on a six-year-old's drum kit. were needed that anybody can drum. Right, back to the script. Okay, well, it's all well and good, us three blathering on about drumming, but none of us, apart from me, can actually play the drums. So maybe we should hear from someone who can. I'm Neil Richards. Uh, I drum. Uh, majority of what I play now is, is jazz or swing or big band, and I, I play in a variety of groups. My main group being a, a, a septet called Zoot. I've been drumming since I was 15 and I've played in punk bands and ska pop bands and Michael Jackson tribute band for a couple of years. A metal band for about four years. I've, I've certainly played a lot of styles, but I do find that jazz is the most consistently rewarding. Certainly watching Whiplash, I found it. For me, it was Black Swan, but with jazz drumming inst- or big band drumming instead of ballet. And I really enjoyed Black Swan, but I know nothing about ballet. I think there's parts of me that think, yes, it's good drama, but I was constantly thinking it's kind of not like that. It'd be like uh, taking Pearl Harbor into a history lesson. And Certainly from a drumming perspective, I don't know any drummers who are that Buddy Rich obsessed. They're very rarely just obsessed with one. So from my perspective, you know, if I'm thinking about my brush playing Paul Motion and his playing with Bill Evans, but then also Ed Thigpen and his playing with the Oscar Peterson trio, which are both poles apart, and I listen to them both and get very inspired by them both, and I don't fixate on on one, and then a bit of Art Blakey's Fire and Max Roach's organised and melodic solos, which is more entertaining and more listenable than what the guy in Whiplash was going for, which was just... Just a buddy rich, very fast, and it's turning drumming into a sport. It's making it the fastest. It's it's the Usain Bolt school of drumming, if you will. You know, there was no discussion of that easy 120 BPM, slightly behind the beat count bassy feel, where it isn't about playing as fast as you can. It's about really holding that groove and locking with the bass player. There's no talk about him being a great drummer who locked in with his great bassist. It was just... I am a drummer, whereas certainly one of the things that's pushed in a lot of drum teaching, the sort of the less is more approach to a drum solo, where someone like Max Roach, who had tremendous speed and tremendous 
chops would play just a very simple tom pattern and repeat it and develop it which is listenable and more musical than just really quickly Can I do one little more yeah. criticism of that bloody yeah, film? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Another thing that annoyed me, and again, it may well be that this annoyed me as a drummer, but I think it was almost lazy in the development of the film, is the equipment that the drummer used. It was a very modern drum kit, and I'm not saying that you know all, all drummers worship at vintage kits, but it had a very, very, very long bass drum. And it was a deep you know, 22 by 20, which is what Travis Barker plays. Whereas I've not met a drummer who uses that sort of big band drummers, and it sounds right, use shallow bass drums, be it, you know, Buddy Rich using his, had a 24 inch deep bass drum, but it was still shallow, 14 inches, or, you know, the guys who used little 18 inch bass drums. It just reeked of having gone into a shop and, oh, that's, that's a drum kit, we'll have that. Whereas, you know, if it's a big band's kit or even a, you know, a hiring for the performance, they would know it was a big band performance and it wouldn't be that style of gear. And it just struck me as very poorly planned to not have a more traditional big band drum kit. Um, Well, I I think there's proof there that if you're close to something, you're going to analyse it, you're going (laughs) to... I don't know, some might say, and I think they'll probably be the first to say it, that you could overanalyze a bass drum maybe you know mm-hmm. in, in its shallowness however i think he does actually make a very very good point if you're spending a lot of money a lot of studios money i think you know i think they, they, they had the hugest budget on this film but you know it's, it's more than the budget we've got operating on spoiler here where you're going to get the right equipment for the right job and you know maybe maybe someone should have come to the top and said that but uh, i don't know it didn't worry you too much did it the, the depth of the bass drum <laughs> <laughs> well you know i think i think he was just chiming with the thought that rang through everyone in the audience's mind but uh, <laughs> no I, I mean i have absolutely no musical ability in any way ever so uh, the, that side of things didn't get to me authenticity i'm sure if i did it would be a niggle but I mean even when when I hear that great interview there and and hear all the holes in in this setup for the film it doesn't bother me because it's still completely alien to me so I don't think it, it ruins whiplash for me but okay well let's, let's, I'll tell you what we'll do now we'll get, we'll get back and we'll get wandering now into the final act and the final act I think is set up quite well by the head to head in the jazz cafe so uh, Fletcher's been uh, dismissed because uh, you know they've sort of gone the back route of, of confronting him and getting, getting him out of there because you know obviously he's just gone gone too far and they're in the jazz club where he's actually playing keys and I found it quite refreshing to actually see him play keys and think hang on oh, oh you can actually play you're not just saying you can play and th- I think that actually raised a good question for me and I, I, I don't know who wants to come in on this but is Fletcher actually a frustrated artist is he, is he is he bound by the confines of teaching or does he really want to be a teacher that's really interesting um I was on a few forums over the weekend after I'd watched it again and there's a lot of jazz pianists also talking about his lack of ability <laughs> <laughs> and um, saying it's an incredibly boring song to choose um so whether that was I don't know whether JK did any of his own playing probably not but you know if he's supposed to be showing that he's a really great artist that was probably not the way to do it so I imagine He's pushing Neiman because he never achieved himself because he just simply doesn't have the ability. Is that scene supposed to show that he's that he's particularly good? Though, because to me, I saw that scene and it just seemed like 
Fletcher but relaxed and that was quite mm. nice to see him removed from from that constant kind of wound up tension that he seems to to feel from, from the teaching point of view and then obviously we it leads into this drink he has with Neiman where for all we know at the time he he seems quite nice and relaxed and and kind and the, that kind of went together well with seeing him play and just relax and enjoy music rather than drive himself to distraction trying to inspire greatness in it okay well hold that thought because we've got a clip of that i don't know if you heard uh i'm not at schaefer anymore yeah i i did hear that did you quit not exactly some parents got a kid from Sean Casey's year, I think, to say some things about me. Although why anybody would have anything other than peaches and cream to say about me is a mystery. <laughs> That's a good laugh, right? I'm sorry. No, listen, nah, hey, I'm sorry. I get it. I know I made enemies. But did you not feel also an underlying tension that actually at any point he could think, I knew it was you? Oh well, you know, you know that. Yeah. You did. I mean, you know, I'm quite sly. I didn't pick up on the folder thing, obviously, when I watched <laughs> it. But, but watching that scene, you know that that he knows, don't you? And that I don't think there's many people who'd watch it, and that would come as a surprise. But again, I think it's that holding back that makes that part effective. You know that he knows, but he's not coming forward with it yet because you know he's got bigger plans for him than just humiliating him in, in the jazz club. And those big plans, that final scene. Now, I, the first time I can ever remember rewinding and watching a final scene twice just because I found it so thrilling. And you worry, I suppose, that at the end of the day you can overanalyze a scene. However, there's, there's so much to be taken in it. And a lot of it is just by a drum solo, but there is so much. Um, how did you feel about it, Rachel, the final big reveal? Yeah. I, I mean, I felt probably the same as you. I wanted to watch it again, straight away, as soon as it finished. But that was sort of on a more, almost a quite physical level. The drumming was so primal almost. It was just, you know, he was going for it and I was really rooting for him. And then you watch it a second time and you view it in a completely different way, or I did anyway. The first time you're like, yeah, go for it, play the drum, that's fantastic, you're doing really well. And then when you watch it the second time and you see how Fletcher is still directing him, he's still, come up, come up now, don't come up, do that, and he's still directing him, and he's still looking for approval, Neiman's still looking over to him for approval, and he hasn't achieved anything, he's still under the thumb of this guy, and he's turned away from his father, and he's walked away, and you just think, oh no, you haven't won at all. So the first time I watched it, I thought, yes, you've won, that's a brilliant drum solo. Second time, actually, no, you haven't won at all. You've learnt nothing. Mm. And that's the, I think that's a sign of a, a very, very good film that you yes. made. You can watch a scene twice and feel differently about oh, it. Yeah. It's, like, it's like when the KLF burnt a million quid. <laughs> I still don't know how I feel about that. You know, Some days I wake up and think that's the best thing I've ever seen. Some days I think, no, blimey, what else did you do? And that's the right way to react to it, mm. isn't it? And I think that's exactly the right way. Andy, what about you? How yeah, about this? I mean, did he, did he achieve greatness? Uh, to an extent, I, I suppose he did, but there's... Uh, I felt exactly the same way as Rachel, that it was at too high a price. He walked away from his father. I mean, that's very... They set up the father figures, as we say, my two dads, <laughs> head to head, yeah. very pointedly at the end there. He has the chance to, to work out with his dad. And obviously, if the film had ended like that, it would have been flat. Uh, but no, he goes back to to the, the evil father, if you like. <laughs> But I felt exactly the same in that the first time I watched it, I, I wanted to punch the air. I thought, yes, I, to all, all intents and purposes, I thought, 
that's the happy ending. And then when I went back to it again, I thought it was co- the complete opposite. It was I felt it was a very downbeat ending, a downbeat ending with a lot of energy, and that you don't come away from feeling depressed. But once you you dwell on what it actually means, I think that is Neiman his final rejection of everything for his art. I mean, you get just before this final scene, you see that glimmer of hope when he, he talks to his ex-girlfriend on the phone and there seems to be a sort of pining for reconciliation. But then at the end, no, it's all about drumming and that's all there is in his life. And to me, it's, I mean, it's oversimplification, but you, you do feel to an extent that you might turn into Fletcher and become the next sort of bully boy pushing someone else and driving them to suicide. Yeah, and, and that's it. I mean, then then fear wins, doesn't it? Fear motivates. Could he be that good? Could he actually be that good without the fear? Could he achieve greatness without the fear, I think, is the basic question I'm asking. I think there's a quite an important sort of little detail in there, is that Fletcher continually motivates him with this story of Charlie Parker having a symbol thrown in his head, and that's actually apocryphal. It's complete nonsense. It didn't happen. And that's that sort of, to me, is, is the answer in a nutshell, that Fletcher has built his whole kind of approach to, to teaching around this story, which didn't actually happen. Charlie Parker didn't need to have a symbol thrown at his head to become bird. That's right, he actually had it thrown at his feet. <laughs> um, and, and only a vague and small humiliation just as a warning, like, what's your timing? Because he was slightly off with his timing once. But Charlie Parker became great because he did what jazz people do. He went jamming with people, he listened to loads and loads of different people. You know, as Neil was saying in his interview, he listens to loads of different artists and that's what jazz is. You learn from each other and, you know, you become a family, a community. That is how greatness is achieved, in the world of jazz at least. Maybe Neiman couldn't have found greatness that way. He wasn't a sociable chap. <laughs> so maybe he never could have. But um, I, I think, again, the cost was just too great. And what is greatness if, you know, you can't enjoy it? I don't think he was enjoying it particularly. And to wind up, I think, I think maybe it's worth thinking that if the acting ever dries up for Miles Teller, he can now play the drums. <laughs> <laughs> and so, as Andy hinted at earlier, Whiplash isn't the only film to feature great scenes of drumming. In the wake of Whiplash's success, many critics compiled lists of the best drumming scenes in film history. For the most part, the same scenes came up again and again. The combustive drummers of This Is Spinal Tap. It was tragic, really. He exploded on stage. Garth's drum solo in Wayne's World. I like to play and various manic performances by Animal in Muppet films down the decades. Animal! But one personal favourite of mine was conspicuously absent from every list, Howard Hawks' 1941 comedy, Ball of Fire. Great educators throughout the world have been forced to streamline our dictionaries and encyclopedias because of the demands of modern slang. Selected to perform this Herculean task of rewriting these ponderous volumes of knowledge is Professor Bertram Potts, who knows nothing about the subject of slang. The film contains a musical number called Drum Boogie, which contrasts sharply with Whiplash's depiction of gruelling rigour. The star of Drum Boogie is legendary jazz drummer Gene Krupa. Yeah, Krupa, Krupa! He performs the song with his band and nightclub singer Barbara Stanwyck, dubbed by popular swing era singer Martha Tilton. Krupa is well known for his flamboyant energy and in the close-ups of him drumming he's clearly enjoying every moment of the performance. Drum boogie, 
This does not appear to be talent born of tyrannical tutelage, but of the love of drumming and a need to gratify that personal desire to play rather than to be the best at it. It's hard to imagine this smiling figure scared stiff with bleeding hands, but it is not the full band version of Drum Boogie which makes this scene so remarkable. Okay, what do you want, Hefkiss? More of all! This lively performance is quickly followed by an encore in which the audience gathers round Stan Wick and Krupa at a nightclub table and they reprise the song with Krupa drumming on the edge of a matchbox. He uses two matches as drumsticks which remain unlit until the very last beat when he strikes them harder against the box and victoriously holds the two flames up before the cheering crowd. This matchbox reprise, Drum Boogie in Miniature, shows the importance of precision and control in the oft underrated art of drumming. What it lacks in the drama of Whiplash's climactic solo, it more than makes up for in joyous vibrancy. When Miles Teller reaches the end of his solo, we feel like his drumsticks might burst into flames too, but this would be hellfire, the ravages of war. At the end of Drum Boogie, the glowing matches reflect nothing so much as the light in the eyes of the drummer, Mr. Gene Kruper, a man who just loved the beat. What is the name of that song? Boogie. What does boogie mean? Are you kidding? thanks very much for that Andy now uh, we're going to uh, wrap things up here um, now my final thoughts with this are that the Oscars are ridiculous and a big sales pitch for the industry and we know this but in future years mark my words on this our grandchildren will never forgive us for giving Birdman the best picture over this I'm right I'm right um, no. I'm, I'm right <laughs> I'd have to heartily disagree okay, with you. Okay, damn it! Something tells me we're going to have to do Birdman in a in a later. I'm still I'm still undecided about Birdman, so that could be interesting. Okay, Andy, you need to come to my way, Rachel. You're wrong. So, marks. Okay, we, we're marking things. Marking things is a tricky old thing. Um, and we decided that we're going to do it on a different scale for each program, just to. Uh, add variety in it um, now one thing I noticed with this is that I hardly picked up my phone in fact I only picked up my phone once so we're going on marks for this one of how many times you picked up your phone during this film so uh, I'm saying one which I, I think is pretty good uh, it means you know like I said earlier on no, no real wasted scenes Rachel um, I didn't pick it up at all actually I was totally engrossed so I didn't pick it up once Andrew and I, I didn't pick it up at all either. But I'm, I have a very rigid rule about, about if I'm watching a film, I'm watching a film that that phone is not getting picked up. That Ooh. phone is in a, another room, if possible, and it, it doesn't matter how bad the film is. You know, I could <laughs> be watching Waterworld, and I'm not picking that phone up. <laughs> really well. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to Spoiler, hosted by me, Paul Tyler, with Andy Goulding and Rachel Burnett. Thanks also to drummer Neil Richards for taking the time to talk to us. Our theme music is by Aaron Butcher, with additional music this week from the fantastic Whiplash original soundtrack on the Vurez Saraband Records. Find out more at whiplashsoundtrack.com. If you've enjoyed the show and you would like to support us, you can go to our website, spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Click on the donate button and give us whatever you think we're worth. You can also sign up for a free 30-day trial with Audible and get yourself a free audiobook by going to spoilerpodcast.co.uk and clicking on the Audible trial banner on the left-hand side. Alternatively, if you're planning on buying anything from Amazon, do it via the links on our website and we'll get a few pennies commission to keep us supplied with the coffee and cake. 
Or you can help us out simply by telling your friends about us, sharing links to our show, or writing a nice review on iTunes. Next time on Spoiler. Following the massive success of his book One Day, we'll be taking a look at David Nichols' follow-up novel, Us. Other people's sex lives are a little like other people's holidays. You're glad that they had fun, but you weren't there and don't necessarily want to see the photos. If you'd like to contact us about anything else, you can email hello at spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Find us on Twitter or Facebook and go to our website, spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Spoiler is produced by Johnny Hoare and is a Joe Schmo production. The show is recorded at the studios of Siren FM in the heart of the beautiful cathedral city of Lincoln. Oopsie daisy. Forgot my jacket.